0: This is the Angry GM, and this is the Angry GM's mostly monthly live chat, which will hopefully last for an hour, which is what I should have told the producer before I started recording, but he has put one hour on the clock because he's very attentive. So anyway, this is the mostly monthly live chat for the month of July in the year of 2023 on the Angry Games Discord server. Yeah, okay. And here we are. And the pre-show yammering away has already pissed me off because we're talking about the differences between Midwest punctuality and New York punctuality. And I'm not going to do that rant again. But I do actually have some prepared talking points. Um, And isn't that exciting? Because we always know that if I have prepared talking points, I'm going to get to exactly one of them in the time I have allotted. And not only that, I am gonna run so far over time that we will then also not have time for the Q&A. And people have already been piling up their Q&A questions. As a reminder, for those of you participating, there is a and a thread. If you scroll up in the live chat text channel, you will find it. Feel free to ask questions or leave comments for my responses in that portion of the show. Uh, Also, Nitsua has posted his monthly Angry Bingo Bingo cards, so feel free to download a bingo card and play the bingo game. And if you win, let Nitsua know or just shout Bingo into the... Type Bingo into the text chat, in all caps, obviously, um, so that it is recognized that you are the winner and you get a book. Not from me, not Nitsua. Uh, You know, as always, legal disclosure, this has nothing to do with me. This is all his doing. So... Um, And it's important that somebody win because Nitsua keeps winning books for himself. And I'm beginning to suspect the thing is weighted just so he has an excuse to buy games or buy books. Um, anywho, so here we are now. It is July. Um, I'm not entirely wrong. I, I imagine... Um, that there is a discussion between you and Mrs. Nitsua along the lines of, what did the, where did this Amazon book come from? Why is there another book here? I thought you said you weren't going to buy any more books. That is not a book I bought. That is a book I won for participating in the Angry Games live chat. That was a prize. Don't you run that game? I don't. don't <laughs> Nitsua is confirming that's pretty much how it goes down. The only reason is because I have those same conversations with Allie, though I play the role of Mrs. Nitsua uh, in that and nothing else. Uh, Like, oh, hey, look, what's that Amazon package? Didn't you say you were going to stop, you know, buying things? Um, And now uh, hopefully Tiny doesn't listen to this. Nobody tell Tiny. Annie, because obviously if if there's one thing the Internet has taught me is... The best way to earn clout is to humiliate your partner um, on the Internet. That never, ever goes wrong. Um, Okay. So first of all, some bits of Angry Games Incorporated gaming news or uh, community news, I guess. This is community news. So I have noticed over the last few whatevers, let's say weeks, let's say months, doesn't really matter, over the last non-specified time period, um, conversation on the angry Discord has uh, slowed a bit, especially in some channels over others. And we also have uh, a literal butt ton of channels. And so over the next month, I am going to be consolidating and eliminating some of the channels and rolling some functions together um, because we just have too many channels and the conversation is just a little bit too diffuse and we're not supporting the channels we have. And plus, you know, it's like it would I'd say it's a pain to moderate, but it's really not because you could scroll through and see there haven't been messages posted on most of the channels. And so, you know, there's nothing to check. But there's a few channels that are absolutely definitely defunct um, and more than a few that can be sort of merged together and sort of a few that I hoped would be more useful than they are. Like, unfortunately, it looks like the looking for groups channels almost never get used. Um, That might not be the case. Definitely the video game looking for group channel really doesn't get used. Um, I will keep the... I'll probably keep the the video the tabletop role-playing game looking for group channel around just because even if it only gets used once in a while, that's still a good use. Um, and that's an easy one to... But we have way too many um, role-playing game channels now. We have um, the, the design lab has kind of died um, except for the one secret channel in there. Uh, so, you know, and that can just go into r- rule hacking or tabletop role playing game hacking. So there's going to be some consolidation, and then I'm going to republish so- sort of the guidelines and rules and stuff for the Discord server. Um, and by the way, if anybody doesn't know, pinned um, at in every channel is, except this one, uh, <laughs> awkwardly. Is a list of the channels in the Discord chat, what they're for, and of course the quote-unquote rules and guidelines of being in the angry community. Not that we really ever have a problem with those. The only real rule is if the the moderators politely say something to you. Um, Just do what they say because even though they're being polite, it's not a request, it's an order. Um, And that's, that's pretty much it. Oh, and don't you be a moderator if you're not. If your name ain't purple, don't be a moderator. Anyway, but that's it. So there's just going to be some streamlining and cleaning up. Some summer cleaning, as it were. Okay, so expect channels to disappear. uh, And that's it. Okay, next thing. On a very, very sad note, I am no longer joined by my vocal co-host, Squeaky Chair. Squeaky Chair, unfortunately, passed away late last week. um, Having succumbed to advanced age... um, Yeah, so Squeaky Chair um, was interred at the dumpster at the apartment complex here uh, Thursday afternoon, and I have a new co-host now, Midback Manager Chair, um, who is not nearly as vocal, at least yet. Um, So yeah, press F to pay respects. Goodbye, Squeaky Chair. You will be missed. Fortunately, filling in for Squeaky Chair is overworked air conditioner because we're having an intense one-day heat wave today. <laughs> just just like, oh, hi. I've been in this... We had like a two-day heat wave last week um, and then it was done and then it's been like 70, 75 degrees and breezy and actually very pleasant. Um, and then all of a sudden today, it's like, oh, you know what? 94 degrees. I, I think it was like 93 or 94 degrees at the top. And this is Wisconsin. So I know I know Proselytus is gonna jump in here. Yeah, here we go. Sounds awful. He forgot to add the sarcasm goblin there. Mister, I live in a desert where it gets 117 degrees in the shade. Um. Yeah, it's dry heat. It's a dry heat. It's bullshit. Anyway, it is not a dry heat here. Okay, so it was like 94 degrees and with the humidity, it felt too fucking hot. <laughs> so anyway, so the air conditioner is going, it will not be shut off and it affects the sound quality. That sounds like a rider crash problem, not an angry problem. Anyway. Okay. So that's it for the big news. Um, a couple of things that I wanted to mention that I really didn't um, like, Oh, actually, I guess I'll throw this in angry news too. Um, so I want, now that I have set up the club slapdash website and, have, and I'm doing weekly updates on Club Slapdash. Two so far, but I'm still keeping the schedule, so that counts. It's weekly. I don't have to call it mostly weekly yet. Um, and that I'm doing a monthly live chat for Slapdash. I no longer have to discuss Slapdash in this general chat thing. Um... Which is good because I'm sure those of you who are interested in learning more about Slapdash um, enough that you're willing to support me at that level already know or are already doing so. And the rest of you are just going to wait for it to come out and then check it out then, which is fine. Um, but I have gotten a couple of emails and questions about why I'm handling Slapdash the way I am. And I do want to take a moment to just discuss it. So... Um, the, the whole point of Slapdash, when I... So Slapdash is, for those of you who somehow don't know, because, you know, if you stand still long enough near me or listening to an open channel that I'm on, you will eventually hear me talk about Slapdash. Friggin' Slapdash. And I keep telling the same story over and over again. But anyway, Slapdash is the role-playing game that I am accidentally throwing together, um, which I intend to give away... Um, Give away the core rules of to my uh, ardent frenemy tier supporters in lieu of bonus content that I felt I could no longer properly deliver since d 5e, uh, well, there the reasons, right? There's reasons I don't think I can do. I, I don't want to risk doing bonus content on a crowdfunded website. Um, I have reason to believe that no matter what Wizards of the Coast says, that's still a risky maneuver. Um, especially once one D&D or now new D&D or, you know, D&D classic or whatever the hell we're calling it because we're not allowed to distinguish it from Dungeons Dragons 5th uh, edition. Which, by the way, that's not a new thing. Like, the designers of D&D back in 4th edition, they also insisted that 4th edition wasn't called 4th edition. It was just... Called Dungeons and Dragons, and you will notice that they said the same thing when D&D 5th edition came out. The 5th edition was not, it was just called Dungeons and Dragons. It doesn't say 5th edition anywhere on those books. Okay, it was third edition. Was the last edition that they flagrantly numbered where everybody could see it, and they desperately wanted people to stop referring to it as fifth edition and not refer to it as fourth edition either, because they want it to be the only edition. So that is nothing new when they say what it, the new edition is, D and D five e. It's just you know a little bit different. We're just finagling and tweaking some things, but otherwise everything will still be backwards compatible. Which is another thing they have actually said about every edition of Dungeons and Dragons, by the way. I think they didn't try to bullshit us about fourth edition on that one. Anyway. Um, But regardless, the the point is that I decided to, as bonus content, I would make it a sort of... I, I was hoping to make it like a several month project, but it's going to be more... Closer to a year-long project, but by the end of this year, those of you who have been supporting me at the me tier level will have a free role-playing game and free adventure to play, and there will be new content for it as it's coming. I'm actually expecting in October you will have something to play. But anyway, some people have asked me why, because I'm obviously taking a lot of resources to do this because the project has become bigger than expected, why am I doing it this way instead of just throwing the project on Kickstarter and, you know, getting separate resources for slapdash. You know, and one of the one, one person actually asked me why aren't you crowdfunding slapdash. And I had a little chuckle to myself because I read that and I said, you know, I I mean I am. Like Patreon is crowdfunding and SubscribeStar is crowdfunding. You know, you, And part of the plan was always that by supporting Angry Games, you would not just be supporting the weekly content, but you would also be allowing me to have the, the time and resources to develop games and books and other content, yada, 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 which um, unfortunately the last couple of years, that has not actually been the case as I planned it. You know, but here we are now moving forward at breakneck pace to make up for two lost years or something like that. Um, and there are advantages to throwing something on Kickstarter. To be honest, it's not just a you know, like the Kickstarter. Like people give a lot of shit toward throwing stuff on Kickstarter. Um, and there is more to using Kickstarter than just raising funds for a project. In fact, even if you have the funds for a project. Uh, It can be worth using Kickstarter because one of the things that Kickstarter affords you is a lot of marketing. Okay, Kickstarter has a very, very big fan base. There are a lot of people who are not in your community who nonetheless keep an eye on Kickstarter and notice new projects and notice new role-playing game projects and things like that, and then they will check into them, share them around, and fund them. Um, and that kind of discoverability is actually really valuable. Whether it's valuable enough to make up for the cut that Kickstarter takes from your funding, that's a, you know, that's a, like, if I just did pre-orders myself, because I, I have a website, I have a, a storefront, I could just take pre-orders myself. Um, then hundred percent of that money goes to Angry Games. It's hundred percent revenue for me, and then the costs of the project come out of that. If I go through Kickstarter, then you know Kickstarter is chewing up a percentage right off the top. They're chewing up like what five percent to two to five percent, which may not seem like much, but it can be a but it can be a lot. I don't know. It's been it's been a few years. Like it's been. Geez, it's been five years since I put a project on Kickstarter, so I don't know if the fee structure has changed there. I know some things um, about how they handle shipping and stuff has changed. But uh, anyway, so the point is, if you think it's worth losing that money right off the top to get the free advertising, which is not insubstantial, it's, it's good advertising, it's worth it to throw a project on Kickstarter, even if you can fund it yourself. And I am firmly of the philosophy that by the, when you put something on Kickstarter, it should be mostly done. Okay, when I kickstarted my book way back um, five years ago, um, my book was pretty much ready to publish the day the Kickstarter ended. And then it was just a matter of sending it to the printer, um, waiting for the books to get shipped from overseas, and then shipping them out. Which is why I was able to deliver just a few months after the, project, after the project ended. And even then we did run into some delays. There were a few problems. But I had done literally everything I could for that book um, without needing the money. And now I'm in a position where Angry Games even has a line of credit where I can actually do some debt financing up front to get even more aspects of a project done before I put it on Kickstarter. Like, I can already have art, and I can already have layout and stuff done conceivably for these things, you know, and then just pay it back out of the Kickstarter. But anyway, all of that aside, the question is, why am I not doing it as a Kickstarter? Um, And why am I just doing it as crowdfunding? And the first thing is because, number one, the goal of Slapdash is... Or, you know, it started out as, and it remains, an opportunity to give my most ardent supporters something to say thank you for sticking it out all this time. Um, And also to apologize for the failure of the theme packs. Um, And because it is that, because it is essentially bonus content, then it is appropriate that it be treated as any other piece of bonus content. But the second, that, you know, I'm, I'm, that said, I'm gonna sell it too. I'd be a fool not to, okay? Because it's I think it has real potential. The the playtesting is going very well for it, um, such as it is so far. But and also, it's the sort of thing that is expandable. Um, so I don't like I th- I think I've said this already, but I don't have to write the whole damn thing all at once. You know, it's the sort of thing that I can easily release monthly or quarterly content for and just do add-on packs for. And if I can write a, write the game in nine months and have that ready to publish, then I can certainly do short add-on things every two to three months with the workload I have now. So, And that's also what that is. It's also a test to see if I can build a role-playing game in the same amount of time that I'm still putting out content and doing the other stuff, which has been a little bit of a struggle at the start of this year but I'm getting there I'm finding the groove it's just taken longer than I'd like anyway all of that is to say the reason why it is done with Patreon is number one and subscribe star as you know as bonus content is because it was intended to replace the bonus content the secondary which is why also frenemy tier supporters um, at the very least, until the game is ready, they get to read design blogs and updates, and there's a small chance they'll win the playtesting lottery. You know, uh, what something like eight to ten people have already won that lottery, have been through, um, have played bits of the playtesting, and there will be more playtesting as time goes on. Um, so there, there is a separate community for Slapdash among those highest tier supporters so they can follow the project and get secret insights to how Angry is building the game and then eventually start to see playable materials well before the game is released. Um, the other reason is because running a Kickstarter is a full-time gig. Okay, for the three months prior To launching the Kickstarter, there's a lot of work you have to invest in it, okay, if you want it to be successful. On top of that, the month you are running the Kickstarter, um, that's your full time job, okay? And then, you know, after you've run the Kickstarter, Depending on how you're handling fulfillment and who you're paying to do what, even managing that is still at at the very least a part-time job, and it can be a full-time job depending on how much you're doing yourself, okay? I can fit that into my schedule. I literally could run a Kickstarter and keep doing what I'm doing and also keep developing Slapdash, but... I still have designs on getting the Tension Dice Kickstarter up and running later this year. And because of that time frame I just told you, you might notice that in the next few weeks, I am going to start ramping up the work for that one, which is what tells you that sometime in October or November is when that Kickstarter is going to launch. It's probably looking. I really want to get it launched in October because I don't want it to run into the holiday season. okay Maybe the first or second week in November but once you run into what once you run into the holiday season, once you get start getting close to uh, Thanksgiving, Kickstarter support drops off. Um, there, there's almost no bad month to launch a Kickstarter uh, except December. Anyway, so that's the reason why. That's why it's happening that way. And I wanted to make sure that I talked about that. Um, I've got, what have I got on the clock right now? Have I got, have I got like uh, 38 minutes or something like that? Is that what I'm, because I, I definitely want to leave time for the Q&A and I've got two topics left on the clock or I've got two topics left on my list and I'm trying to decide whether I need to cut one. Okay, my time is correct. Um, okay, quick one. First, I'm reading a book, and I thought some of you might enjoy this, especially if you need a book that'll just make you feel friggin' good. Okay? Because, man, did I need that? I needed a book that would just make me feel good. It is a nonfiction book. It is entitled As You Wish. It is written by Carrie Elways. Yes, that one. Um, and Joe Layden. And mm. it is his memoir of the making of The Princess Bride. And what is absolutely, like, you know, um, the, the Princess Bride was obviously a wonderful movie um, for an entire generation of gamers and adventurers and, uh, you know, adventure-seeking gamers like us. But what's really wonderful about this book is the amount of love that everybody felt for the project And the sheer number of just positive, feel good moments and the way everybody got along and the way everybody wanted, you know, the way everybody just wanted to make it happen. Um, It's it just makes you feel good. It's one of, you know, like I'm not going to get too much into modern Hollywood and all the crap that comes out of that. And all like and everything, like everything, is so filled with toxicity now, one way or another, you know. And all the marketing for everything is just people yelling at people for having the wrong ideas about this or that. It's really nice to read a book where a bunch of people made a movie they loved making, written by an author who loved writing it, for people who turned out to love it. And that's what the entire story is. And Gary always is like the nicest guy ever. Like he has nothing but nice things to say about everybody. So yeah, you want to feel good. Read as you wish. Inconceivable tales from the making of the Princess Bride. Um, I don't know. does it, let's see. Does anybody want me to 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 blather a little bit about my current D and D campaign? because I, I have it on the list that I should at least talk about what I'm doing because it is it is a little bit in um, I'm doing some okay I'm getting I'm getting some yeses uh, from the live chat from the voice the, from the chat channel. Okay, so um, my regular Thursday night DD group was co-opted into being the first ever playtesters for Slapdash. And that ended up chewing up a lot of our time. Um, And it also robbed me of my one for fun game. And so I decided that for the Alpha 2 process, which was mostly going to be a highly mechanical process, um, that is mostly just, you know, running the same sorts of every dungeon-type games over and over again, um, and seeing how often they kill the players, or kill the characters, um, that I would find a new team and I would also move that to work hours, you know, for that whole work-life balance thing. And in the meanwhile, we would do something fun for a few months until Slapdash was in a more playable state, because actually the one thing that came out of that playtest was my group was pretty much ready to switch to Slapdash as our campaign. So, the problem is Slapdash was not ready for that. But I did make the promise that, you know, in several months, in the autumn or whatever, when it's more ready and it's in something closer to a much playable state, our game will become a regular Slapdash game. But in the meanwhile, that meant we had a few months of game to fill. Um, And one of the problems that I've had specifically as a Game Master the last few years is... Sporadic and unreliable scheduling, which means the last several campaigns that I have run for these folks have petered out without reaching any sort of ending or closure. And then we switch systems or we just stop playing for a while or one thing or another. And you know, and my players were rather frank and honest about that, especially one of them, especially two of them, actually, but one more than the other. Um, Saying that that kind of was starting to hurt. And I totally understand. I have always been a firm believer that games need closure and you don't skip the... Like, if you're going to cut content out of the game, cut content out of the middle. Don't cut the ending. Give people an ending. Give people a denouement. Um, Which I know it's pronounced denouement and I don't care. Give people a denouement. Okay? Anyway... So I said, okay, here's what we'll do: we'll pick a system, something simple, something that has really quick character generation because we wanted to start up right away. So I was like, so we need something where we could just like sit down, roll some dice, and walk away with some characters after an hour or two, and then just start gaming. And eventually, we settled on Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Second Edition, which is one of the games I grew up on. You know, um, I switched from. Uh, Dungeon dragons the the Menser basic set uh, you know basic ex- expert master companion immortal the Beck me. Some people say Beck me some people say best me um, I you know it's a gif gif question but anyway and then I switched to a D d second edition because I was of an age where that was the current edition um, and I swore I would never ever go back to it because it is clumsy as hell. It is, like, the early editions are totally inelegant. The design is just terrible because it's before we invented good design. I'm not saying they're not fun games, and I had lots of fun with them for a long time, and I'm playing it now, and I am remembering some of the really clumsy shit, especially in second edition. Like one of the things that we have a drinking game out of now is when I it was me reminding them, okay, this is a check where you have to roll under and this is a check where you have to roll over. You know, like I'm roll roll to detect secret doors. Am I trying to roll low or high? You want low this time? You know, check your proficiency, your non-weapon proficiency. That's a roll under. Um, you know, it's not really the Thaco that's, that anyone's really struggling with. Then again, I like I do that anyway on the back end. It's like, you know, I know everybody's Taco. so it's just like, oh, okay, roll to attack the goblin. You need a seven, you need a thirteen to hit, okay. But it, and actually, one of the things that's nice is because of that system, like the players can just say I hit, or even better, they can just not even say I hit, just say I hit four clatter, seven damage, you know, which is nice. But one of the things I decided to do is something that I haven't done in a long time, which is to do a plot-focused campaign, and all because I have a limited time frame to do it. I have, basically, I think we agreed on, like, 12 sessions as the baseline, though it's probably going to take a little longer, and I don't care, because it's fun, and I can use that extra time to make more slapdash anyway. Um, But... In the yeah um so I have like 12 to 15 sessions and I plotted out a a basic campaign based on the characters that they randomly rolled, and they're and they basically they randomly rolled characters and then they picked classes and then they picked non-weapon proficiencies, and we made up a little story for each character. Um, and then I took those stories and then built a campaign story. Around That those characters would be the main characters in, you know, so we have an elf who is traveling from elven lands to this frontier kingdom that um, they've been out of contact with for ages because, you know, you know millennia ago there was a, another kingdom in this land it collapsed due to tragedy due to unspecified tragedy that kingdom collapsed and the land lay forgotten for you know several hundred years before a new and young frontier kingdom was founded on its ruins like you know because it's it's D&D that's what you do so we have the elf who has been sent by his people to begin over the kingdom's now proven that it can last for about 150 years um so the elves are like okay maybe now that it's been 150 years and these people are are around and they haven't, you know, started shit, maybe we can make the first Overtures of Peace with this generation, and then in a few generations, we'll have an alliance again. Um, we have a dwarf who has the standard tragic, my clan was wiped out backstory, um, though shit, the players don't know that, so uh, spoiler alert for any of my players, you don't know... Um, the the dwarf's backstory yet, um, we have a, a peasant human who stole a uh, an heirloom sword that turned out to be an ancient sword from ancient times, and we have a cleric who is an astrologer, and I wove together a story, um, which essentially comprises I think nine total adventures meant to fill. 12 12 to 15 sessions, nine total adventures um, in which they would unravel the the tragic downfall of the ancient kingdom and maybe prevent it from happening again, dot, 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 um, that would tie into their backstories and motivations, which that was a hell of a fun thing to do. The problem is, of course, this is ongoing, and we've they've basically gotten through the first adventure, which was sort of the introductory adventure where the random schlubs come together in a tavern um, and then kill some goblins on the road and and discover that there's more going on than meets the eye um, and become friends, right? Like the, the standard tutorial adventure starter zone bullshit. Um, so that's as far as we've gotten. Actually, we got a little farther than that. We just had our first interlude session and if you read today's article you know what that means the interlude session is a is an extended scene it can be Caledrive is saying woo town mode and yes they can take place in a town but they are the scenes that tie one adventure to the next one uh, because it's more to make it more interactive so what happened is this: the cleric was sent by members of his or, by a member of his order to deliver a sealed scroll case to a scholar in a nearby town. Um, the rest of the party um, joined him on the road for var- who they were traveling for various reasons of their own, searching for their lost people, trying to make contact with humans, or seeking adventure to help her impoverished family with her heirloom sword that she stole. Um, and thus, they, you know, they started adventuring together and they cleared some ruins of goblins. But they also discovered that a thousand years ago, an otherwise honorable um, order of like clerics or, you know, an otherwise honorable order of knights met some sort of tragic ending and somebody may have even betrayed their oaths. Um, and they don't quite know what that means, but they also have a lead now on who might have owned the sword that the one character inherited. But then they got to the town and they had to find the scholar and deliver the scroll case. Unfortunately, when they got there, they discovered the, or the, the scholar was nowhere to be found. Um, apparently, having left town months ago. But in the meanwhile, a dwarf had showed up in town, and this is unusual because there haven't been dwarfs in this kingdom in 50 years. Um, Because the dwarves nearby had a tragedy some 50 years ago that the humans don't know about. But anyway, so there was a dwarf wandering around, and the dwarf in the party got very excited about that because he's been looking for other dwarves. Anyway, so the party was basically wandering around town talking to people and trying to retrace the steps of this scholar and eventually discovered that the scholar had returned to town in secret that the dwarf was traveling with the scholar and that they had left on another journey or you know and they were going somewhere else now the party is going to chase after her because they've also discovered that someone nasty may be on the scholar's trail right so that, that's the thing but In that story, there were two things that I've thrown together that I'm particularly proud of because, you know, um, I have a a group that likes a little bit of thinking and investigating and exploring and putting things together. And so one of the things I gave the elf, because his player is very into um, all of the, like, all of everything to do with exploration, Like, you want to make him happy, you give him a map with a bunch of locations on it. Okay, and he also likes to think a bit, he likes to work things out, but other members of the party like to work things out more. And so I gave him a map of the ancient kingdom, labeled in Elvish, and told him he could show it to the party, because his character had it. And gave him the means to translate the map, but warned him his translations were going to be inaccurate because we're translating Elvish to, you know, human, and names have drifted over the years, and many of the locations no longer exist; they're now in ruins. Yada yada yada. So he's got this ancient, thousand-year-old map of all these old locations, and the party was clued into a particular location, um, or the, clued in that this scholar was going to explore a particular ancient site. And they had only a couple of vague names to go on. And then the elf's player had to look through his map. And he looked and he realized that the name was very similar to a name he knew that happened to be nearby. And thus was able to, they think, surmise where this scholar might go. I'm not saying whether they got it right or not. But I'm saying it was a very clever use of the resources. And it worked as as this sort of diegetic puzzle. Because it's actually you know it's a, it's a puzzle obviously but it's the sort of puzzle or problem that exists in the world where we have translation issues an ancient map, a modern map and a bunch of vague references and trying to put them all together um, yields kind of a puzzle. There was also another puzzle that you might have seen in the play te- in the, the role-playing game play, Play discussion channel where I made a bunch of constellations and some woodcuts because the scholar was trying to find a way to leave information um, because she suspected she was being followed, and so she hid it under a particular object. And the object was marked with stars. And let, let me tell you about this puzzle, because one of my players ruined it. And I might have to extend the live chat for like 15 minutes just to get it in here. Because one of my players ruined the puzzle in the best way possible. And this so perfectly illustrates what I was saying in that trap article about when your players do that, they win. Okay? So here's what happened. The they find they get this mysterious message from a scholar, and the scholar's like, if you need more information from me, um, I've hidden it under Astranth, which is the name of a star. And the cleric, who is also an astrologer, recognizes that as a star in a certain constellation, the constellation of the sage. Now, in the scholar's hovel, um, which had been ransacked, which indicated that someone was right behind them, but in the scholar's hovel there are these basically basically just wooden plaques with dots burned into them. And, you know, in a floorboard underneath the one that corresponds to the sage, you know, you lift up the floorboard, there's a hidden cachet, and then there's a secret message that provides her information. Because she knew that someone was, she knew that, the, that someone from the church was going to come looking for her. So she was leaving information behind. Okay, So I'm, I made a bunch of visual aids. I got stock art and I edge enhanced it and sepiaed it to make it look like these woodcut drawings. And then I drew, you know, put stars over them. So I actually built all these constellations. Um, and I also, then I got... You know, I got art of, like, the, these wooden plaques and using an airbrush tool in, in like, GIMP or whatever, I burned dots into them so that I could just show everybody everything. I was really excited about this. And I put, like, an hour and a half of work into it. You know, because, you know, sometimes you get really wowed by this. And I will say that, I'll I'll come back to that, but I put a lot of work into it. I was really excited to run that session. And the session was running long, and the party was... You know, you know we, we took a little time to get where we wanted to. So it was just about at our quitting time. And I was pushing the party. Like, you have time. You can go to the hovel. You can go explore the hovel. Because I really wanted them to see this puzzle. I was really excited. And plus, I don't want to spend two friggin' sessions in town mode. And we're going to spend, like, half of the next session in town mode, too. Which is a pain in the ass. But whatever. So anyway, so they get there. And I figured they're going to be excited about the puzzle. Yada, yada, yada. Except. The minute I said, you know, the NPC who was saying, oh, yeah, she left a message. She said she left a hidden, uh, something hidden for you underneath Astranth. And then the astrologer player said, Astranth? And I said, yes, it's a star. It's a star in the constellation of the sage. It's the most prominent star in that constellation. He's like, oh, okay. And then immediately the player playing the peasant girl who inherited the heirloom sword she suddenly pipes up and says you know what i bet i bet when we go to the sage's house we're going to find things marked with constellations and we're going to have to figure out which constellation you know which which one is the right constellation and under that gonna be the message i'm like damn it because I really wanted that aha moment. I also screwed up the aha moment, by the way, because I showed some visual aids too early and that gave away the game. But even then, like, she said that whole thing. So they walked in and it was like, instead of that eureka moment where they're looking around and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go look at those weird plaques. I'm like, oh, yeah, so you look at this plaque and it's just got these dots burned into it. There's nothing else and here's a picture of it. And I'm like, Well, can we look at another one? And then gradually hope they're like, wait a minute. I think these might be constellations. Is one of them the same? You know, that that moment that you'll live for when you make a puzzle like that. And instead, she had that moment with half the information. It's like, you, she rang in on Jeopardy. It's like, this person, bing! Who is Chester A. Arthur? That is correct. You jerk. Okay? But I told her flat out I hated her. Though I don't. I don't. I obviously love her. But nonetheless, I'm like, I hate you. Because it blew the whole thing. But at the same time, you know what? That's just the price. And what I have to concede is that they won. And I really had, because someone I think said in the the play chat, like, you know what? I would have moved it. I would have made the puzzle different. I'm like, yeah, but you know, they earned the victory. And I have to give them full marks. In fact, I got to give bonus XP for that. Right, I mean that's the thing. Not only do I have to reward them for doing that, I have to say you did one better, because with limited information, you knew exactly what you needed to do. You you were right there, right? Because this is AD&D 2nd Edition, so you give experience points for like every little piece of bullshit every player and character does. Um, it's it's a delight. Um, but anyway, fortunately, neither the map. Nor the constellations will be wasted work. Um, And I must say this carefully to avoid spoilers. But this is not the only time either of those themes will come up in the game. Okay? Like... Uh, i i build to motifs right i mean i've talked about this when i'm building dungeons right like build a roster of monsters so that your early your later encounters build on your early encounters and then the ta- you know the players can use the tactics that they learned for the earlier monsters to fight the later monsters yada 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 like stuff like that well there's you can also build puzzle motifs you can build trap motifs you can build motifs for just about anything So this is not the only time that they will play with puzzles having to do with identifying the stars. Um, This is not the first time, this is not the last time they will have to deal with um, having inaccurate information and maps with weird information on it and having to puzzle things out based on incomplete clues and what have you, nor is this, nor will those puzzles necessarily be separate. At some point, there may be a time where those motifs cross over and there may be a puzzle that, you know, something they have to figure out to get to the next leg of their journey that is going to involve both ancient maps and weird constellation-y stuff. So I'm not sad about the work I did and that's why I was willing to do it. For a one-off puzzle like that, I don't... I would have... If it was really an isolated puzzle, I would have just grabbed my Sharpie markers and drawn the whole thing on paper and been done with it in five seconds of crappy sketch work. But because I knew that I'm going to be building motifs that I'm going to be getting a lot of use out of for the next 13 or so sessions, um, I'm willing to put that work in. Which I guess... You can also take that as a lesson on how you, as a GM, decides what's worth putting the time into. And there's also, I guess, a lesson in here about knowing what really excites your players um, and trying to deliver that stuff to them to give, you know, to give them a the campaign they'll really enjoy playing. Um, so, anyway, with that said, and with whatever time I said left, plus Fifteen minutes. I'm going to turn it over to Q and A, though I will stop early if I run out of Q and A. So if you have any questions or comments, uh-oh, I'm getting a herm from the producer. Is there, the um, are we going to run into uh, like like, is there a a, a showing of something we can't uh, preempt tonight? No, I'm fine. Okay, 13 plus 15 minutes. Okay. So if you want to make sure you get your questions or comments responded to, go ahead and throw them in because if there's too long of a lull, I'm going to start saying goodbye. Okay, so. Hagley asks, Do you... uh, Oh, I should start... Since now there's different people who have all sorts of different color codes, I guess I should start calling out the color codes too and really acknowledging people. Frenemy Hagley... My frenemy, Hagley, asks, do you have any advice on maintaining a session's pace when dealing with players discussing plans or speaking to NPCs? I'm struggling with the balance of providing time for interactions, but not letting it unreasonably drag the progression down. You did not want to wait for the next mailbag, did you? Because you, someone emailed this exact question to me for the mailbag. Um, but no, this is a much smarter way to get an answer. Um and to get an answer that is both more complete and also less wordy. Uh, so here's the deal. Um, it is all, This is always a tricky problem because you are right. You do not want to step on the player. If the players are really engaged with speaking to NPCs or they're really engaged with their planning session... You want to let them do that. As a general rule, if the players are enjoying doing something, absent any external factors, like we have to finish this game in three hours, or you know we only have six weeks to finish this campaign, you can't spend an entire session planning your next move, barring external factors that make time extra super valuable... You don't want to stop the players from doing shit they're enjoying, but you do want to stop the players from spinning their friggin' wheels. And a lot of times when the players are planning or when the players are speaking to NPCs, they can shift very suddenly from enjoying the interaction and having a good, meaningful interaction to spinning their wheels and getting nowhere. So you have to listen very closely. I know some GMs check out, okay, when their players are, you know, we're talking about plans or whatever, okay? And I do too, a little bit, but I always have one ear tuned to what's going on at the table because if you notice, number one, that the players have started to repeat themselves. They are done and they don't know how to finish. Okay. If you notice that they that you have player uh, players come up with plans and then another player shoots. But what if? And then they shoot that plan down because what if? And then another plan comes up and it's like, but what if? And then another plan comes up and it's like, well, what if? And every plan they come up with, they can find a reason why there's a chance it won't work. You do need to intervene at that point because they will never have a plan. They are either too risk averse or um, they, like they, they just don't know how to actually plan. Like, that's really what it is. You know, one of the things with planning is somebody in the planning session has to be the one to say, well, we need a plan. We have put three options on the table. All of them have risks. We need to pick the one we think is best. Let's stop adding new plans and objecting. like Because, you know, there's always going to be issues with every plan. So, and if your players don't have that person... Even though it's a little, you know, metagamey or intrudy or whatever you want to call it, you as the GM sometimes have to be the voice of reason and jump in and say something like, okay, guys, listen, real talk, you are now talking yourselves in circles and you have now voiced several plans and... Um, You have a couple of objections to each plan. No plan is going to be perfect. You're going to need to pick one or we're not going to get anywhere. So as I understand it, these are the three plans that you have been discussing. You know, maybe which do you think is best? You know, and then can you overcome the weaknesses in that one? Okay, you kind of have to do that sometimes. It's all you can do. The same with speaking with NPCs. Okay, one of the problems with speaking to NPCs is that players never believe the conversation is over. They always believe if they can just say the one right thing, that they can keep the conversation going. So after an NPC says, look, no, you you know what? I'm not convinced. I'm not helping you. I'm done with you. The players will say, okay, but, and then they'll try a different tack. And that's okay once or twice, but then they run into the, they're just saying the same thing over and over and over and over. Okay, again, that's the now they're the repeating. At which point, you need to narrate the end of that scene and say something like, You continue trying to convince the innkeeper, but to no avail. He gets increasingly frustrated until it becomes clear that you are not going to get anywhere with him. So... Bob, where does the party go now? Okay? And that's really the trick. Is like, it's a judgment call to decide when time is being chewed up too much and when the players are spinning their wheels. And you have to make that judgment call based on how valuable the time you've got to play is and how limited it is and whether you really want to stop things. And then you have to know how to stop it. Okay. So, Stu, what would you do if you pulled the special, the one ring magic card? I like this question. This uh, Stu. Oh, by the way, Stu is, uh, what is, oh, he's a dungeon designer. He's a quick and dirty dungeon designer and a frenemy. Stu is a quick and dirty dungeon designer and a frenemy and would like to know what I would do if I pulled the special, the one ring magic card. And I like this question because it's basically the nerd equivalent of what would you do if you win the lottery? Um, and I'm, I am not going to give my honest answer because it's boring. um, but it is extremely responsible because you know, most people who come into sudden windfalls of money, uh, if they were not already wealthy, usually end up broke very quickly. Um, because, and I know it is unpopular to say this. Most people who are broke are broke, not because they don't make enough money, uh, but because they don't manage their money. Well, um, and yeah, that's okay. Cancel me now. But anyway, so what would I do? So here's one thing I always wanted to do. Um, there's a few things I've always wanted to do because I think if you're going to have some money, you should have some fun with it. So apart from doing all the fiscally responsible things of getting myself completely debt-free, um, investing enough of the money to you know to have a good income off the interest and dividends and all that shit... Um, You know, give some to family, set up 529 plans for certain members of the family, yada, 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 stuff like that. You know, all the responsible, boring stuff nobody wants to hear. Here's the one thing I always wanted to do if I won the lottery, if I came into a lot of money. First thing I would like to do, I would like to play with my money because you are supposed to have fun with your money, right? And the most fun fun toys that exist are other people. So I would do things like I would go into a dollar store, though I realize now we don't have dollar stores because, you know, we live in Biden's America. So inflation. And now we have to go to five below because you can't get anything for less than five bucks. But I would go into a five below and I would fill up a cart with like 10,000 things. okay. and then when I get to the register and the cashier looks at me with this giant full cart of stuff, I will just look right at them and say, what? You have a lot of good deals. And they will ring it all up, and then I will, of course, pay for it in cash. Um, And I will also give a substantial tip, because if you're going to play with someone, you should tip them. Another thing I will do is I will find a nice public fountain, and I will have several hundred dollar bills in my pocket. And I will offer people an umbrella and a hundred dollar bill if they will reenact the opening theme to friends for me. Um... I also would love to go into a like a McDonald's or a burger, basically anywhere, put hundred bucks down on the counter and say, I would like a big Mac, and this is yours if you can make it look like the picture. And of course I'd let them have I, I would give them most of the I would give them money anyway. And it'd be like, good effort, here you go, because I know that's impossible. But that's the sort of thing I would do if I won the run ring magic card. Of course, we're not talking about a lottery prize here. Like it it remains to be seen what that's actually going to be worth. Um, you know, because a thing is worth however much anybody is willing to pay for it. So we have to see what the price it's actually going to command if it gets sold. Um, Because who knows? You know, that's the problem is a -a one-of-a-kind thing is you can't set a price. By the way, does everybody know about this, by the way? In the the Magic the Gathering Lord of the Rings tie-in crossover bullshit thing that Wizards of the Coast did, there are several versions of a artifact card called the one ring but there there was one version of the one ring that they literally only printed one of and like wonka's golden ticket they hid it in some booster pack somewhere in the world right so and then somebody recently found it uh their identity has not been disclosed which means by the way it could be me and if you're willing to you know reenact the theme song to friends there could be a little bit of money in it for you too but anyway um so it's out so somebody found it and now there's speculation as to how much it'll actually be worth it'll probably be worth a couple million dollars because people are crazy assuming someone is willing to pay, pay for or assuming the finder is willing to sell it you know that's the other thing something is worth both what someone is willing to pay for it and what someone is willing to sell it for so but, you know, we're not talking like, you, you know, the, the, the a giant lottery prize here of hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. So, you know, like, anywho, when you get down to it, like if it's worth a million bucks, that's not a whole lot of money these days. It's, it's nice. It's comfortable, but. Oh, man, that would actually be awesome. Drago just brought up a really good idea and I'm changing my answer. Part of me is disappointed, says Drago, who friended me for life, Drago. Part of me is disappointed the answer wasn't throw the one ring card into Mount St. Helens. You know what? That's what I would do with it. Because, you know, if I found the one ring card in all seriousness, because at the end of the day, I will throw away vast amounts of money on a joke. Um... I will take it to a vo- I will film this. I will live stream it. I will put it on the internet so the world can watch me hurl it into a volcano. No, one does not simply walk to Mount St. Helens with the one ring card. Okay, Nitsua. Uh, anyway. Okay. Tennis KS. What are the advantages of... Uh, and disadvantages of using a static defense system, i.e. D and D4e over saving throws. Um, st- so uh, I assume what you what you're saying there is, why would like, you know, um, basically to determine the defense of spells and special attacks, Instead of having the victim or the potential victim of the special attack roll a die roll to avoid it, the attacker rolls the attack and compares it to a DC based on the target's stats, you don't have to type and confirm because I know I'm right. Tannis KS is typing or Tannin. Tannin KS is typing. Tannin KS does not need to type to clarify because I know I got it right. And if I didn't get it right, this is still the question I'm answering because this is a question I want to answer. Okay. Anyway. And the reason I'm phrasing it like that as I explain it is because that right there is the primary advantage. Okay, is that it makes sense in the rest of the system. Okay, I have long explained... I've explained numerous times now why saving throws are a gibberish, bullshit, bizarre mechanic. Okay, because in Dungeons & Dragons and all D20 games, and in fact in most role-playing games, the person who takes the action rolls for success. Okay, There are some games where both parties roll for success, and there are some games that use a different system. Like, for example, in Powered by the Apocalypse games or anything designed by dice hater Monty Cook, um, the players always roll for everything. Okay, but those are nice because that means there is this you always know who is picking up the die right? If you have a system where the person taking the action always rolls the die for success, you always know who's picking up the die. There's a logic to it, okay? Dungeon Dragons has no internal logic for it, because 90%, like, when you take 90% of actions, you roll the dice. But there's some actions where the target roles to turn your action into a failure, okay? Instead of you trying to succeed, the target is trying to turn your success into a failure, okay? But the big problem is there is no way to deduce the rules of when a saving throw is the right answer and when an ability check is the right answer. There's no real logic to it. Instead, you, you basically, the actor always rolls an ability check. They always roll to succeed unless the rules of the game specifically say this is one of those bizarre cases where we use a saving throw instead. Okay? That is an inelegant and clumsy design. Because there is no logic to it right there. But the other thing is that what it does is make those things that count that rely on saving throws. In the internal logic of the of the game world, um, things that have saving throws always work. And then the target sometimes resists or avoids them. Okay? When a fighter swings a sword, he can miss or he can hit. When a wizard casts... a spell that has a fire... When a cleric casts Sacred Flame, which allows a dexterity... Sacred Flame always works, but sometimes the target dodges out of the way. Okay? Which means... All the weird, bizarre-ass, ab- strange abilities are super-duper reliable. They always, always work, and it's just down to the target to put up a fight. Whereas every other action you take in the game, success is on you. It's all, there's also an interesting sense of control involved, okay? In general, when you let the players pick up the dice, they feel like they're in control of the outcome of the action. Wizards sometimes get to feel that because some of their spells have attack rolls, which, by the way, that made everything even more bizarre. When they decided that some spells have attack rolls and some spells have um, saving throws, now it's just a complete pile of meshs. right? So, yeah. Anyway, so, I don't know. That's, those are the, the answers. Basically, saving throws are a stupid mechanic. There are no advantages to using them. Okay, I don't say that lightly. I very rarely say I can't see the good in something. Literally, the only reason 5e went back to saving throws is because it was trying to appeal to the old schoolers. Okay, Um, otherwise, saving throws... Like in 4e, saving throws were a very different kettle of fish. They were a variable duration mechanic, um, so they don't they don't count here. Just because they have the same name doesn't mean they were the same thing. Okay, but the only reason that saving throws got thrown back into fifth edition um, is basically because it's just de-evolving. Okay. Frenemy for Life, Nox Eternus, and also the head of the Quick and Dirty Dungeon Design Club and publisher of the Quick and Dirty Design Magazine, uh, do you have a 4E character sheet that you particularly like? I do not. Okay? Um, and the reason why I do not is because one of the biggest bugbears I had about 4th edition is that. All of the powers necessitated you to use cards or have huge amounts of space on the character sheet to write the details of every power. Because you absolutely did not want to have to look in the rulebook for every player character's power. No character sheet I ever found for D&D 4E had sufficient space for recording powers... Which meant the character sheet was just a list of numbers, and then you had to supplement it with a pile of cards. So no. That said, um, the character like if you're willing to also use cards or supplement it with another way to record powers, um, the character sheets in that come with the core book. I found them really well-organized. I found them very nice, very clean, very easy to read, especially the Essentials-era character sheet. So, like, the core ones from Wizards of the Coast were the best. I don't like my character sheets cluttered. I like them organized and easy. 4 had wonderful presentation. Okay? It did. Wes Belmont, who is a friend... Of, is that... Frenemy yeah. West Belmont is a frenemy. Frenemy West Belmont. Is there a piece of art or concept for an image that you really want to include in your slapdash rulebook? Nope. Sorry. Um, no, I mean, here's the problem is I'm not at the development phase yet and I'm more a designer than a developer anyway. So I haven't given any thought to what the world looks like yet. Oh, wait. <laughs> okay. This is going to have a secret reveal about Slapdash and one of you is going to have to go tell the Slapdash channel that I said this. Um, And also, um, in the future, I would like not to have any Slapdash-related questions in the non-Slapdash chat. But I will do this one since it's here. Um, Slapdash has an astral plane mechanic. Magic operates through the astral plane and wizards can see into the astral plane. Okay, so all the like... Uh, detect magic shit and aura reading shit and, you know, detect alignment that clerics and wizards can do. It is literally seeing into the ethereal astral magical mana plane or whatever the hell it is. Uh, There's got to be a picture of that. Okay. That's That's like the one visual I actually have pretty firm in my head. You know, and it looks sort of like if you saw... Um, and it's, ba- it's based on the old stories about astral projection, the old stories and, and, and pseudoscience of astral projection, the, the paranormal time life books, all that stuff. So if you saw the Keanu Reeves Constantine movie, when he went into hell and how everything was hazy and just emitting smoke and what have you, um, or like the shadow realm when Frodo puts on the one ring. Everything non living, everything inert looks like that in the slapdash ether, and everything alive glows radiantly in the ethereal plane. Okay. Coltergeist. Uh, frenemy Coltergeist. Apologies if you've answered this before. How do you telegraph attacks when resolving combat? For example, the ballista is aiming at X and then it shoots at that area. Well, I think you just kind of nailed that. This is going to be the last question because I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting like a four minute warning. Yeah, five minute warning. Okay, so this is the last question. Nobody type any questions because after this I'm, I'm going to be done. Okay. Apolo- so, I mean, you just nailed it. Like, that's what you do. Okay, honestly, although I said recently in the big battle example that I don't distinguish between the ends of rounds and and the beginnings of the next rounds because initiative is cyclical in most modern games, um, the truth is that at some point in every round of combat, I do sum up what's going on. Okay, at some point, I will throw out that sort of long-ass scene-setting reminder of, okay, so, um, Adam, it's your turn. As Ardric looks around, he can see uh, Berylia is, you know, is cornered by the ogre, while Cabe is, you know, Cabe and Danae are trying to fight off the goblin horde over here. You know, the goblins are not giving up. They're still tenaciously fighting, you um, and the ogre is thrown into a fury um, and rears yada yada yada. Okay, so I will always do those sum ups, and oftentimes in those sum ups, one of the keys is to give an idea of what the and what the foe's next plan is. Like, what is their next action? The goblins are going to keep fighting. The ogre is going to keep fighting. Or the, you know, the goblins are looking for a way to retreat or whatever. Okay. Whenever a character's, or a creature's mental state changes, I describe that. So when it, the moment something on the battlefield triggers, you know, a morale break or a morale check or whatever, I let the players know right then and there that they, they can see the, the creature's spirit breaking. You can see that moment of, oh shit, uh, we're, we're not going to win this, I'm out, Right. So I make sure they know about that stuff right away. If something is about, is going to use a big attack like the ballista, um, I will telegraph it in, you know, usually in between turns. And, you know, this is all by gut. There's no rules to it. There's no system. And if you ask me to be systematic about it, I will smack you in the head because you're missing the point depending on how difficult the challenge is and how powerful the creature is or the attack is and whatever, um, some number of rounds or some number of turns, you know, like phases in combat, turns, you know, passes, whatever, you know, like if if the ballista goes on initiative count six, then I might say, you know, uh, right before... Danielle's turn, who goes on initiative count. Do we count up initiative or down initiative now? Oh my God. High initiative is good now, right? Man, I got to stop running a completely different edition of D&D every three months and then writing my own game and also running other random games because I can't keep track of anything. Okay, so if let's say the Ballista is going to go on initiative count three, then when Danae's turn starts on initiative turn seven, I might say something like, meanwhile, across the, on top of the battlements, you can see that these soldiers are swinging the ballista into position and taking aim. It looks like it's aiming right at the position where Ardric is engaged with the, you know, where Ardric has cleared the area around him and all the soldiers around him lay dead. You know, he's directly in the path of the ballista. Just, you know. And the farther out you declare, you describe that, the more chances you're giving the players to react to it, which means the easier you're making things on them. I usually try to give at least, you know, for a minor thing, I'll give, give a player a turn before it goes off. For a major thing... I try to let most of the party have their, like if the dragon's getting ready to breathe fire, usually you know about that at the top of the round. It's like, oh, he's rearing back. He's getting ready to breathe. And then you consider where he comes in the round. There's something like that. You know, you know everybody's going to have a turn before the fire actually comes out. My goal is with telegraphing to make sure some number of players from one to all of them has a chance to respond to anything that is massive, okay? So that was a very, very long and detailed answer that took me right up to what I assume is the time limit, and that's why I'm suddenly getting messages again. My time is now up. So with that, I am gonna say goodbye. I'm gonna thank everyone for hanging out, especially Hagley, Stu, Tannen, KS, Nox Eternus, Wes Belmont, and Coltergeist for asking questions. I'm also going to thank Proselys for producing for me, Nitsua for once again putting together the Angry Bingo, um, and everybody else just for hanging out and, and uh, listening to me blather away. Um, I, thank you, everybody, for supporting me. Um, you know, I want to thank my mom. I want to thank Jesus. You know, I th- just thank everyone. You know, thanks everyone. Thanks everybody for everything ever. Um, but seriously, thank you all. Uh, I wish you all a great week and I will talk to you again next week or next month, next month. We're not having another thing. Um, not having another thing next week though. There, I think there's going to be a slapdash thing in two weeks, but that's a different thing. Anyway, I'm done. Good night.